0: But if you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, if you're using a black hardcover Bible that uh, is under those seats there, page 961 uh, is where you will find 1 Corinthians 15 in our text today. In his 1989 novel, author named John Irving, uh, the, the novel, I'm sorry, is called A Prayer for Owen Meany, In that novel, John Irving writes this, I find that Holy Week is draining. No matter how many times I have lived through his crucifixion, my anxiety about his resurrection is undiminished. I am terrified that this year it won't happen, that that year it didn't. Anyone can be sentimental about the nativity. Any fool can feel like a Christian at Christmas. But he goes on to say, Easter is the main event. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a believer. There's a, a bluntness and really an unbelievability about the events of Holy Week that resists sentimentality. The betrayal of Jesus and his suffering. The death of the one who claimed to be God the Son. And then Resurrection all in an incredibly condensed time frame. And this confronts us all. Some of us gather together this morning because we believe and we hang our lives on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If that applies to you, welcome. Others of us here don't. And if that applies to you, welcome. Perhaps you came because it makes your family happy that you're here. Or you're curious, you're searching for meaning, purpose, something in your life. Or maybe because going to church on Easter Sunday is just a a long-standing tradition for your family and you didn't want to break that tradition. Whatever it might be, I'm grateful for for your presence here. If Christmas and Easter, though, are these two big holidays for Christians, there's something really different about them. As John Irving wrote, it's easier to feel like a Christian at Christmas. It doesn't plunge us into the questions and the doubts and the anxieties like Easter does. It doesn't cause us to ride this mental and emotional and theological roller coaster of weighing the justice and the mercy of God together, of weighing the suffering and the triumph of Jesus together of weighing the cost of our sin and the once-for-all paid-in-full ransom together. Scripture is remarkably honest about all of this. It addresses our anxieties and fears and doubts because they are the same ones that humanity has been experiencing ever since these events played out in and around Jerusalem 2,000 years or so ago. So over these next few weeks, we'll be in the last two chapters of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city in southern Greece. It's about 50 miles west of the city of Athens. And in this letter, Paul is responding to a series of issues and problems that are playing out in the church there. A few years ago, we made it through the first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians. If it would be helpful to go back and reference some of those, feel free. They're on our website. Uh, The series is called A Beautiful Mess. But here in chapter 15. Paul addresses one final topic. Some in Corinth are denying the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and their own future resurrection. But this problem, this denial in Corinth, has become for us and for the church a treasure because in response to it, Paul pens these words which have been preserved and faithfully passed down ever since both in its earliest days and in our cultural moment, Christianity often appears to be on its heels. Does it not? It often appears that Christianity is on its heels. It's often set up in a defensive posture. Even the word apologetics that we use to talk about our faith, it's about defending the faith. But here's the thing. The Easter gospel, that Jesus is not only dead, but that he is risen, This is news that has to be reckoned with. We have to do something with that. Skeptical and cynical people have to do something with that. The skeptical and cynical part of me, with its own anxieties and fears and doubts, that skeptic wants answers. It says to Christians, it says to Scripture, prove to me that this is true. But the historical record and the consistent enduring witness of the people of God for 2,000 years flips that around. It says to skeptics and to cynics like me and perhaps like you, no, 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 no. You prove that it isn't true. You come up with some other plausible explanation for why hundreds of people saw him alive, why the church exists at all, why it emerged at all amidst the harshest of conditions, let alone grew and thrived. So for the first time, or for the thousandth time, Because Easter in its nature already resists the empty sentimentality. Let's join together this morning to reckon with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your same spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of Scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as our Savior and our Lord. We ask now that you will send your spirit to give us deeper insight and encouragement and faith and hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the risen one. Amen. The resurrection is a claim that we must reckon with. And as Paul writes in these verses, that's true in two ways, which we'll spend the rest of our time considering. That we must reckon with the resurrection historically, And we must also reckon with the resurrection personally. So first, historically. Historically. At times, uh, you'll hear different writers, authors, speakers, say something to the tune of this. At the end of the day, all that really matters is that we believe Jesus rose again. Or something like this. Jesus' resurrection really was a spiritual resurrection. He's raised in our hearts. He's kept alive by our memory of him. And that's really What ultimately matters. But we need to know, unequivocally, that is not Christianity. The minute that the resurrection of Jesus becomes merely spiritual or merely just something we believe, we've invented another religion. And to put it bluntly, it's this kind of empty sentimentality that the Easter Gospel obliterates. It doesn't leave this as an option for us, not for seriously thinking people. Not for people who want to deal in reality instead of in fantasy. From the foundation of the church, Christians have believed in the objective historical event of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And as we'll see in these coming weeks, Paul hangs the entirety of life and faith on this being true, on the physical resurrection. There is no Christianity. We believe in vain if not for this. There are some foundational truths that are essential to our salvation. And the key word there is some. There are many others, many other important matters of doctrine and theology and practice, which, let's not pretend otherwise, they have a major impact on the way we think and the way we speak and the way we live our lives. It's important to consider and to live in light of what Paul refers to in the book of Acts, the whole counsel of God. But when he writes here in verse 3, that he himself delivered as of first importance a few things. Paul creates, not creates, introduces a category. Consider and follow the whole counsel of God, yes, but on the matters of first importance, burn the bridge behind you. Leave no back door, no escape hatch. Because apart from these things actually being true, our lives and our faith are in vain. These things are the the core, the gospel preached by the apostles, believed not only by the Christians in Corinth, but by all Christians ever since there were such a people. What are those things? Verses three through five take the form of a creed. It's a concise articulation of core gospel beliefs that's existed, we find from this text, long before Paul. It's what Paul himself received. And since 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament written within 20 years or so of Jesus' death and resurrection, this creedal statement contains the substance that Christians have believed since the beginning. What is it? Namely, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. Which presupposes a few things. That we are sinners, for one. That there is hostility. Hostility. That there is enmity between God and humanity because of that. When Jesus was crucified, it was a supreme example of sacrificial love. But it was not just that. It was for our sins. It was to take our place as sinners to deal with our sin. The death of Jesus exemplifies love, absolutely. But it also accomplishes something. As Bob put it earlier, it's not just the love of Christ, it's also his power on display. In order for Jesus to die, he also had to live. And so this statement also contains within it Jesus' incarnation. That God the Son took on flesh, that he lived a fully human life. All of this is of first importance. Paul goes on. He was buried, which means that he actually died. That he didn't faint or swoon only to be revived later. He was put into a tomb. And his burial, in particular, proclaims these as literal, physical events. Jesus did not just die and rise metaphorically or or in our hearts. He died and was literally put into the ground. And this is of first importance. He was raised on the third day. He was raised up by God the Father, body and soul together. In his work entitled Seven Stanzas at Easter, John Updike puts it this way. Make no mistake, he writes, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. This is of first importance. So too is the phrase here, in accordance with the scriptures. It shows up twice within the creed. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not A change of plans, in other words. It was in accordance with what God had already revealed. The God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New. This is the fulfillment. The the death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan and work that has been in place and in process since eternity past. And Paul here, as he says, in accordance with the Scriptures, might have any number of Old Testament Scriptures in mind. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Ezekiel 37, Hosea chapter 6, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant. But big picture, he's not proof texting. He's pointing to the broader and the consistent witness, the consistent message of the Old Testament. That the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one would both suffer and die and have eternal dominion. And for generations, it remained a mystery of like, how in the world are those two things compatible? That the Messiah would suffer and die and have eternal dominion. But when he rose from the dead, when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke's gospel records for us, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interprets in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He gives an amazing lesson through the Old Testament scriptures of how it all points to him and his finished work. On the subject of resurrection appearances, Paul continues, there were many. To Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter. To the 12. And this is where the creedal statement ends there at the end of verse 5. But Paul keeps on going in verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul here is saying... It's only been 20 years. A few of those people have died, but most of them are still alive. You can go and ask them. This wasn't done obscurely in some remote corner of the world. This was done in Jerusalem on display for people to observe. Jesus also appeared to James, his brother. He appeared to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to Paul. This is the resurrection of Jesus is among the best attested, authenticated events In history. And this is the substance of the gospel, these things of first importance. As one scholar puts it, this is unalterable Christian bedrock. And it is also news that you and I must reckon with historically. As normal as these things might seem to those of us who gather week in and week out and rehearse them, these are unbelievable. Incredible history altering claims. And they either happened or they didn't. For Christians here this morning, let this recalibrate your focus. Are we talking about, are we proclaiming, are we prioritizing the things of first importance? As I said earlier, it's right to consider and to live in light of the whole counsel of God. And if you know me at all, if you've been part of our church at all, I hope you would attest to this. I will never invite you to be simplistic or reductionistic as a Christian. But if we're honest, most of us spend far more time and energy and use many more of our words talking about anything but the things of first importance. And maybe that's because we're too isolated from people who aren't Christians or we're too removed from real engagement in the places that God has us. So for us, reckoning with the historical reality of the resurrection and the scandal of it, the kind of anxiety and doubt that it creates in real people in real time, that will wake us up. These are the things apart from which there is no salvation, and that's true for us, and that's true for others. For those of you here this morning who perhaps are not Christians, start here start here. And I say that because it will be tempting to start anywhere else with certain aspects of Christian morality that just grate against our modern sensibilities. With the compatibility of science and faith. With the hypocrisy of Christians that you know, people that believe this but their life you don't want to emulate for whatever reason. There are thousands of obstacles to belief. Instead of letting those trip you up, Reckon first with matters of first importance. First things first. Reckon with the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. It either happened or it didn't. And as a pastor and an author named Tim Keller puts it, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Second, we must also reckon with the resurrection personally. Not only historically, but personally. Verses 9 and 10 here in 1 Corinthians 15 are really a digression from Paul's main point in this chapter. Throughout this chapter, remember, he, he is writing, as he, as he articulates in verse 12, to address those and refute those who are denying the resurrection. But as he writes about that, he just can't help himself from making it personal. And that's because the resurrection impacts us personally. It's not only an objective historical fact, it's the source of the subjective experience of radical personal transformation. And when we read not only 1 Corinthians, but any of Paul's letters, it's like he's just utterly incapable of writing about the truth without connecting it immediately to what Jesus has done in his own life. And thank God for that. Thank God for that, because otherwise, 1 Corinthians 15 might sound like a forensic scientist testifying under oath in court. It might sound like Ben Stein's teacher character in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember that monotone, drab, unaffected voice? Can you imagine reading 1 Corinthians 15 in that voice? Paul instead is like, get this, God raised him up. And it was the end of death itself. Let me not only tell you about the historical reality of that, but what it did in my life. It changed it completely. Our stories are powerful. And they are a great way to share the good news of Jesus with other people. Stories of transformation of the power and grace of God at work in real people, not just in theory. Our stories are only a cop-out if we're afraid that the objective truth won't hold up underneath that. They're only a cop-out if we somehow elevate our subjective experience over and above the objective truth of what happened. But Paul doesn't do that. Not here, not anywhere. The apostles don't ever do that. These 11 verses hold the objective and the subjective together. Historical, fact, and personal experience together. Together. And what that serves to do for you and me is that it peels away both empty sentimentality and calloused objectivity. It takes away both of those. It it makes us, it leaves us to deal with the actual substance of Easter. So we breezed past this earlier, but consider the stories of Peter and James, two of the many to whom the risen Jesus appeared. Peter, went from denial and weeping bitterly and locking himself in a room cowardly with all the other apostles, dejected, discouraged, hopeless, to within 50 days of that moment, preaching boldly and powerfully to a crowd of 3,000 people who believed and were baptized and were added to the number of the disciples on a single day. And soon after that, defying the ruling body of the Jews and living out the rest of his days at perpetual risk of beatings and imprisonment. And history teaches us that ultimately, Peter is martyred. He's crucified upside down, rejoicing that he's counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, but not considering himself worthy to die in exactly the same way. Do you think the resurrection changed something for Peter? Do you think it changed something for Peter? And then James, the brother of Jesus. As we read in the Gospel of John, James didn't believe any of Jesus' claims or miracles during his life and ministry. Many of us have siblings. You have siblings? If they claim to be God and to have supernatural power, would you not be the first one to call them on that? You know better than that. You've lived with them too long to think that they might be deity in some way, supernatural power in some way. So what does it say if one of your own siblings becomes convinced that you are the Son of God? Especially after they've spent all of the years of their life before the resurrection responding like most siblings would and thinking that you're absolutely nuts. James becomes an apostle, becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He ultimately, too, is martyred, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then there's Paul himself. Last and least of the apostles. He didn't spend any time with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. He saw the risen Jesus, but not during those 40 days between Easter and the Ascension. Instead, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus while Paul was en route to persecuting and imprisoning the Christians who lived there. And so it was undeniable for Paul, left to himself, He was unworthy to be called an apostle. He was not just apathetic, unaffected, or ignorant. He was openly and violently opposed to Jesus and his people. But he writes in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Trusting in Jesus didn't simply align Paul with accurate history. He didn't just pass the history test after this. He received grace. He received the unmerited, the ill deserved favor of God. This objective historical work of Christ came to count for Paul personally. And the inexhaustible well of God's grace, of God's salvation, began to be poured out on him. And as we read even here in this text, it utterly transformed him from murderer to missionary, from persecutor to pastor. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't read like a dissertation of a PhD candidate. It reads like the words of a man for whom the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed absolutely everything. And friend, you are what you are solely by the grace of God. You and I may never have persecuted the church. We may never have been openly hostile to Jesus and his people. But we are, by our nature, by our choices, sinners. Those who suppress the truth about God, those who reject him and his work, and those who therefore need the rescue, need the reconciliation, the salvation that only Jesus can accomplish for us. When I think about my own life, forget apostle. Forget apostle, prideful, self-righteous, lustful, timid man that I am. I'm not worthy to be counted even a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not worthy to be associated with Jesus Christ in any way. But because of the death and resurrection of Christ, I can add my name to Paul's. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you believe this about your own life? Do you have a a feeling sense, not only of your need for grace, but a feeling sense that the work of Christ has laid hold of it for you? To the extent that you find in your own heart this morning a deep sense of that, rejoice. Rejoice in that. Celebrate that. Complete your joy by inviting others to share in the same. To the extent that you don't. If you affirm the truth of these things but you feel them not and perhaps it's even been days, weeks, months since you've had that deep sense of it. Take heart. Take heart. It becomes no less true, no less powerful on the days that we don't sense it. And what's more, on those days when apathy or doubt or fear or anxiety persist and reign in our lives, know that the resurrection actually validates this experience of what it means to be human. Because as we all know, it's not just joy and celebration, but fears and sorrows and apathy and anxiety that characterize our real lives. It reminds us that we need grace, not just once, but always. It reminds us that for all of the historical objective weight of the resurrection, it is impossible to live our lives as purely objective people. There are no such thing. Real people are subjective. We feel things. We experience things, including apathy and anxiety and doubt and fear. And the resurrection of Jesus doesn't suppress or subdue this personal experiential nature of humanity. What does the resurrection do? It restores it it redeems it, it renews it. It proclaims that you and I are not just minds that need to think accurately about the world, but that we are souls, that we are hearts that must actually be transformed to live in light of what is true, made alive again in need of our own resurrection, as Paul will go on to write about. Practically, allow the power of stories and a personal experience to renew you. And even today, even today, as you likely will later on today, gather with family, gather with friends. Ask people to share about their lives. Share about your own life. If that's not possible for some reason, then read the stories of the people mentioned here in this text, the apostles Peter and James and Paul. Read the stories of faithful Christian men and women from the 2,000 years since doing so will not only fuel your confidence that the resurrection is true, it will fuel your confidence that the resurrection and the grace of God poured out because of it really does change people, really can change you in the most beautiful and best ways possible. And I don't just say this to those of you who are already Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're here, there's a story to that. There's a story to that. And in the past... Into the present, God has been doing something at work in and around your life. And it's led you to sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now. You don't have to wait until you're convinced of the resurrection's historical reliability to begin to ask questions about its personal impact on the lives of Christians that you know. You can start there. So on this Easter Sunday, church, Shedding the empty sentimentality, let us reckon with the resurrection historically. As the creed that Paul received and passed on says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then to hundreds more. This is not myth, fable, legend, or idle tale. This is the truth on which our lives hang and shedding calloused, unaffected objectivity. Let us also this Easter reckon with the resurrection personally. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has laid hold of the grace of God, and he's not just done that in general, he has done that for you and for me. And by this grace, only by this grace, we can add our name to Paul's and say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the good news, the gospel Of Easter. May you receive it. May you stand in it. May you know and experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. God of our salvation, you have restored us to life. You have brought us back again into your love by the triumphant death and the resurrection of Christ. We pray this morning that you would continue to heal us as we go to live and work in the power of your spirit, that we would reckon with the events of 2,000 years ago, historically, that we would reckon with them personally, that it would not be for us empty sentimentality nor calloused, unaffected objectivity, but we would believe the truth and that the truth would transform us completely. By your spirit, do that work that only you can do. We pray this all in your name. Amen.